Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast for today. You can't get me down. I don't care scary modeling information or not. Plus an update on the latest information we have on the vaccines and what is an MZO and why does the Ford government continually use them to help and spur development. Let's get to it. You cannot get me down. No, sir. No, sorry. It is Friday. There's beautiful, fresh snow out there. I began my morning with a little bit of a cross-country ski right in the park across from where my house was. Delightful. And I will not be brought low. I will not be brought down by a fresh round of finger-wagging warnings. Guys, let's be positive. Let's be positive. Because nothing is different today than yesterday. The pandemic is still on. The variants of concern. Variants of concern. Thursday at the Horseshoe. The variants are still spreading. Canada is still lagging on vaccine distribution. And what do we have from the federal government? We got graphs and charts. Graphs and charts. Charts and graphs. Modeling information. That is... What is the modeling information? You want to guess? You want to guess at what kind of information they gave out today? Uh, If you guessed it was all sunshine and roses, you have been Rip Van Winkling it for about a year now, I think. Guys, let's be positive. It's tough to be positive, but you're going to have to. Hear from Canada Press. New federal forecasts project that COVID-19 variants could fuel a surge of 20,000 new cases per day by mid-March if public health restrictions are relaxed further. Canada's chief public health officer says there are currently fewer than 33,000 active cases in Canada, a 60% drop compared to a month ago. You know, Teresa Tam, you cannot bring me low with this scary modeling data. This model predicts that with more contagious variants spreading, further lifting of the public health measures will cause the epidemic to resurge rapidly and strongly. That's the orange line. And current community-based public health measures will be insufficient to control rapid growth and resurgence is forecast, the gray line. But if a combination of enhanced community-based public health measures and good adherence to individual precautions are implemented and sustained, the epidemic is forecast to come under control. Oh, Okay, well, I started off of that. At the beginning, I was terrified. And at the end, as I keep following along in the graph, charts and graphs, graphs and charts, maybe it's not as bad because you know what? You know what's happening in the UK where they have the UK variant? Cases are under control. But what did you hear? What did you what what stood out to you? in what you just heard there from Dr. Tam. The epidemic will surge rapidly if further lifting of control measures is allowed. So that's a fresh warning that this is not the time for a relaxing of control measures. I'm talking to you in Kingston, Ontario right now getting your hair cut. I'm talking to you in Oakville, getting your nails done right now. And to you in Burlington, having your back waxed. 
You know who I'm speaking to. Burlington, Ontario, my hometown, a lot of hairy backs there. Don't ask me how I know. But I refuse. I refuse to bow to the cynicism that is created by message confusion because you got the doc at the federal table saying, if you release or relax these restrictions, then we're going to get a surge of these new COVID variants. And (laughs) what's happening in the province of Ontario? Oh, this is what's happening. Bonkersville pretzel logic like this expressed here by the Deputy Premier and Minister of Health for the province of Ontario, Christine Elliott. What we're looking at is not a reopening. We're looking at a transition back to the framework that we had before the stay-at-home order was brought forward. You cannot get me down with that nonsense. You can't. You can't. Because after a year of this, I know this. I know this more than anything. We're on our own. You and me, we are on our own. We are going to drive ourselves around the bend with this stuff. It's, it's not a reopening, although stores have reopened. It's a transition back to the framework. Oh, by the way, do you know, are we in a lockdown in Toronto and Peel right now? Because you might actually hear on the news, lockdown, 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 this is lockdown. Well, no, we're not. We're not in a lockdown. No, we're in a stay-at-home order. That's different than a lockdown because a lockdown has been modified. That's back in the trend, back in transitioning to our color-coded framework. Uh, and in a lockdown, you can still have non-essential stores open with 25% capacity. So figure that out. And in Toronto and Peel, the doctors here, as you know, they want no part of that. They, don't give me the transition back to the framework. No, thank you. We need to stay in <laughs> Gotta go. Almost said lockdown. We have to stay. In, we have to stay in the stay-at-home order for two more weeks before we, you know, at minimum, before we move to the lockdown. Meanwhile, York Region it feels it's red. It feels red. It self-identifies as red. Here is the mayor of Markham, Frank Scarpitti, saying that's fine for Toronto and Peel, but up here we feel different. Uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, I respect uh, the medical officers of health from those uh, jurisdictions. Um, They know their backyard better than anyone. Our medical officer of health knows our backyard uh, better than anyone. Yes, uh, the premier is quite strongly indicated he listens to the medical officers of health. While he does that, I know he uh, listens to his science table. He listens to the medical professions uh, at Queen's Park and others in the community when it comes to that advice. And, and he puts it all into a cocktail shaker, you see, and then he just he just gives that a good shake, and you garnish it w- with an onion, with a pickled onion. Uh, and uh, then that causes a tear to drip from your face into the drink, and you consume that, uh, and that is the cocktail that will help us understand, I don't know what is going on. That's anymore. disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. <laughs> Thank you, Doug, for it. So it, how does this possibly make sense to you? And, and, and my point is that that today we got the DOFO show, by the way, at 2 o'clock today. Very special DOFO show, special time, 2 p.m. We'll carry it for you here on Global News Radio. But I, I, I know what I need to do. You know. What you need to do, you need to stay a la maison, right? 
You need to stay home. Listen to what you're hearing from the federal doctors. Listen to what you hear from the doctors, even here in Ontario, when they give the modeling information, the update information here. It's like, yeah, well, the variants are going to get out of control. Uh, And meanwhile, hit me again with that one more time from Christine Elliott, because this, I could just dine out on this pretzel all day. What we're looking at is not a reopening. We're looking at a transition back to the framework that we had before the stay-at-home order was brought forward. Does that make sense to you? Uh, even if it doesn't, you know what you got to do? You got to stay positive. You got to stay positive. This is We're in this still for a longer haul than we had hoped. We know we got a ways to go. We're going to get some information about the vaccine. Actually, Justin Trudeau speaking now. We'll get you up to date on what he's saying about the vaccine. This is following the modeling information from Teresa Tam. Another another scary, scary update. You know, if we lift the restrictions, things are going to get out of control. And then we're lifting things in Toronto, or rather in Ontario. Possibly not in Toronto, possibly not in Peel. We'll find out later on this afternoon. I'm telling you, you got to stay positive. We have to have each other here. We do. We have to. And I, I, you know, I come on this radio station and on, on this program and I'm in here. I'm in a closet uh, in a in a in the basement of an industrial building in Don Mills. That's where I am. Guys, let's be positive. And I'm trying to be positive because it's easy when you take all this information in and it doesn't seem to add up. And it's it's real easy. To, I will not bow to the cynicism of the confusion. I won't because I know what needs to happen. I need to stay a la maison. So do you. We're going to get out of it. It's going to be okay. Stay positive. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau updating the country as we speak. He has just announced the extension of the Canada Recovery Benefit and the Canada Recovery Caregiving Benefit by 12 weeks. Also increasing the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit to four weeks and also increasing EI eligibility to 50 weeks. Uh, That information is just coming in right now. The Prime Minister, I don't believe, has started to take questions yet. We will stay on top of anything newsworthy that comes out of this press conference. This uh, follows a modeling update from Theresa Tam in which she warned that the vaccine, or pardon me, the variants of concern could spread very, very quickly throughout March and that if there is a lifting of restrictions, we could see a significant increase in daily case counts right across the country. Uh, As we look at what's going on with the vaccine, uh, interim monthly tracking figures released Thursday by researchers. Oh, pardon me. I, I want to talk about variants right before I get to the, the vaccine. I just want to quickly point this out because I just mentioned, uh, Teresa Tam, in that variant update, uh, especially the concern about B117. Check this out. I just This really stood to, out to me. Interim monthly tracking figures released Thursday by researchers in London has found that the number of people in England who have tested positive has fallen by more than two-thirds from mid-January to February 13th. So this is an uh, encouraging sign that just because the B117 might be the dominant strain doesn't necessarily mean that it's an out-of-control, catastrophic spread, that the same things apply to just regular COVID as do to the more contagious strains. And that is hand-washing, social or, or physical isolation, staying away from other people, reducing contacts. All the things that we know work, work for the variant that work for just plain old 
COVID. Now, two vaccines. Pfizer now says that its vaccines don't have to be stored at such cold temperatures. Those deep freeze requirements have complicated the use of the shots outside of hospitals. As you know, they have to have that special uh, freezer, but apparently not anymore. The company now says the vaccine can be kept up for five days in a regular refrigerator and could last an additional two weeks in a regular freezer. Just in your, just in there, you know, beside, you know, all those leftovers that you've forgotten to to get to in your freezer. You could just use them there. Uh, Iris Korfinkel is a vaccine expert and a family physician and joins me on the line to talk more about what we know about the vaccine rollout. How significant is, uh, for example, the th- this development about one vaccine only, uh, doctor, and what we know about the efficacy of not having a second dose? It's quite interesting. We are hopeful that the Pfizer vaccine can be delayed for up to 12 weeks. So that's, that's encouraging, and it will allow us to make the most of the limited amount of doses we now have. So consider, phase one is supposed to go on from December all the way through March. And what is phase one? We're trying to vaccinate those who are at the highest risk of either death or hospitalization, and at those who are at the highest risk of spreading the disease to other people. And that's true for all three phases, but especially that's the concentration for phase one. And as we go into phase two, which is not supposed to start until March, I keep getting all these questions from patients. When do I get my shot? If you're a community dweller, that's not starting until March. And even then, the exact layout and how it's going to go, it probably will not be available through family doctor's offices, but rather through clinics. So these are some very practical points. 20 hospitals will be giving them out. There will be some mobile vaccination sites. Pharmacies, we hope, will be playing a role. But as far as primary care settings, it's unclear. The new news from Pfizer comes as a very exciting thing that, in fact, it can be stored, but five days is hardly anything. Consider the weekend. That's two days long last I checked. <laughs> so it's, it's a but, bit of a problem. <laughs> but but we've, we've had trouble in, in the province where, you know, we've sort of slowed the uh, vaccine dosage uh, rollout over Christmas. I know we don't have the actual supplies now, so we don't have that problem. But we've had difficulties before, you know, keeping care going over the weekend in terms of inoculations. Yeah, it's a serious issue. And even in the hospitals, you know, we, we heard about reports about people who are not necessarily in the highest risk categories getting vaccinated. And the reason they were getting vaccinated is because out of really out of fear, we didn't want it to go to waste. You know, so trying to strike that right balance and make sure that we're not wasting doses because they're going to expire and giving it to the highest risk individuals who need it. We've got to be quick on our feet and quick to act on it. So I'm not quite sure if it's going to be 100 percent. But like everything in this pandemic, what has been 100 <laughs> percent? You know, it's like the summation of imperfectly moving parts. My mask isn't 100 percent. My PPE isn't 100 percent. Nothing is 100 percent. Well, even our, evo- <laughs> even our evolution of the knowledge about masks and vaccines and how they can be stored and whether you can get five doses or six doses, all of that is seems to be evolving e- even as we speak. That's that's absolutely true. And it's interesting, you know, when you say get that sixth dose out of that vial, that's not easy to do. 
It really isn't. The reason the companies build in that little bit of extra is because we've got to flick out that the little gas that gets into the syringe when we're drawing it up. And invariably, there's a little vaccination that comes spurting out along with the gas when we try to push it out of the syringe before we give it. So getting that last, that every little tiny little last droplet is not an easy proposition. So, but if we and, can squeeze out special, that six, those would be great. You, you need a special syringe for it. Is that a problem? Do we actually have these special syringes to be able to get a six dose? Are you asking me personally, Alan? I don't. You have any, you have any syringes on hand? I, I'm, I'm once again forced to eat <laughs> humble pie. I mean, let's face it; it's not the first time, and unfortunately, not the last time. No, I don't have these kind of special syringes in my office. I have little like insulin syringes, but these are really special syringes that that pull it out in such a way to minimize the gas that gets into the syringe. You know, so it's kind of and and on top of it, they're not easy to get you know we had to get in line to get enough syringes because guess what in addition to the glass of the vi you know the vials that that provide the vaccination well it's also hard to get syringes and needles and all these things you know the world is vying for the same amount of materials and and it's not always easy to get what we need when the when Dirk Heyer was uh, Dr. Dirk Heyer was asked yesterday about this th- this whole concept of waiting twelve weeks uh, and and this this evidence that possibly even only one dose could be very effective on, on its own, Ontario doesn't seem to have changed its rollout plan. Do you predict that 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 is going to be something that's going to develop over the next couple of weeks? We're we're really going to start pushing that further and further down the line. That second dose, even if we use it at all. No, I I actually do not see Ontario doing that. It's interesting, Quebec pushed it out, you know, they pushed it out to 13 weeks. But the problem with pushing it out to too long is that the evidence base for doing that drops off. So there's the theory of medicine. Could it be effective? (laughs) Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be. But then, you know, there's the research. And we tend to go in that second category of what does the research actually show. And the problem with having immunity that's less than optimal when it comes to vaccine, in other words, you're giving people, say, it's 70% instead of 95%. The problem is that allows a foothold for variants to get in. Because every time another person has an infection, it could become another variant. You know, so I, that sounds scary. Actually, there's probably hundreds of variants that have developed. Most of them are not what we call variants of concern. That means the kind of VOCs. (laughs) Hey, that has another meaning too, doesn't it? VOCs. (laughs) Like, I think it does. Right, whatever. Okay, let's leave that aside. That's that's totally. Do I have to check Urban Dictionary? Is that what you're telling me? (laughs) You can check it if you want. (laughs) But okay, variants of concern. So the vast majority of the variants that develop are not variants of concern. But if you have enough variants, enough monkeys at the typewriter, as they say, eventually you could get something that is a variant of concern. So that's why it's so important to keep those numbers down. And for now, our best vaccination, if you will, isn't in the form of a shot it is in the form of everything we're doing minimizing those social gatherings and that's a big ask i recognize that's a huge ask but the social gatherings are the number one cause of how this disease is now spreading 
You, you want to weigh in on the fact that we're not reopening the province of Ontario, we're transitioning back to a framework. At the same time, we have Dr. Tam saying any kind of reopening is a really bad idea with the VOCs, and yet we are, in many places in this province, reopening non-essential stores, limited, I understand, but we are reopening some portion of the economy. Are you concerned about that? It's fingernails on a blackboard. What can I say? <laughs> I know that's not a popular thing to say now, but I just put it out there anyway. It's fingernails on a blackboard. To me, as a doctor, vaccine researcher, yes, it is of concern. I cannot believe it. I mean, I understand the argument for schools, but some of the retail stores, I mean, let's face it. What do we want? Are we going to choose death by a thousand cuts? Or are we just going to bite the bullet and do a hard lockdown? You know, so countries that have bit that bullet, as hard as it is, it could explode in our mouths, it's so hard, it's so hard. But what happens is that you really do shut down the disease. Look at Australia. Like, that's exactly what they did. Everybody's closed. Nobody's going anywhere. It's a total lockdown. You want to walk in the street, walk at your own risk. It's that kind of a hard line. But then Mm -hmm. on the other hand, they're not having the disease now. (laughs) <laughs> and so this, what happens is we're always one behind the eight ball. That's the problem with, you know, we'll, we'll try to open. Oh, our numbers are down. Let's try to open. And meanwhile, the VOCs, the variants of concern that are, we know, way more contagious, not just a little more contagious. And there is data coming out suggesting they may be more deadly as well. So we've got an issue with that, you know, the variant that was identified first in South Africa. Now, the U.K. variant, maybe not so much, but even so, they're both way more contagious than uh, the original strain. Hmm. Dr. Gorfinkel, thank you for your perspective uh, and for your humor today. I appreciate that very much. Thank you again. Well, many thanks, Alan. Always a pleasure. That is uh, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, who's a vaccine expert and a family physician. Time for an acronym alert. What is an MZO? Not a muscle car. No, it is a municipal zoning order. And uh, I know you're just... Now, hold on. Before you drift off to sleep, trust me, you need to know about this. What this is, is it's used by the provincial government to expedite development. (laughs) And can be used... Stop it! And can be used to override local planning and zoning rules. It is an MZO, a municipal zoning order. And this is, for example, what the provincial government, the, the Ford government has used with the foundry buildings in the Portlands down uh, down there, you know, we, where they started knocking down this heritage building, these series of heritage buildings, and uh, a, a number of city councilors and the mayor in Toronto just started, you know, pulling out their hair, and, and eventually they put a stop to it, uh, and now it's under assessment, reassessment. Well, that was a MZO, a municipal zoning order that was used by the Ford government in that case. Now, the MZO is an effective tool often for central planning and a way to counter local nimbyism for the, you know, the good of the province. But the trouble is, is that the good of the province is a subjective thing. And the MZO is a pretty big hammer that tends to create anger and accusations of dictatorial tendencies and ignoring local will. And remember that come election time, all politics are local. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that can really come back to bite a government at election time. Now, who benefits from from the issuance of an MZO, creating development. Well, of course, often it's developers. 
Now, here we come to the rub, because when you look at some of the biggest developers in this province and developers who have benefited from the use of MZOs by the Ford government, you will find some of those same names on the donor rolls to the progressive conservatives. Emma McIntosh is a reporter with the National Observer and has written a couple of pieces about this and joins me on the line. Hi, Emma. Hi, it's good to be back. Thank you again for being on the program. What did your investigation find about the correlation between donors and developers who have benefited from MZOs? So we found that a lot of the developers who are proposing some of the projects linked to MZOs that have been the most concerning from an environmental perspective have donated a good chunk of change to the progressive conservatives. We're talking over 100K to the party itself, and then another 150K to Ontario Proud, which actually makes up about a third of what Ontario Proud's budget was during the last election year. So this is not nothing that we're talking about. Did we look at whether or not they'd also, you know, put corresponding donations to other parties? I I know that a number of big corporations often spread that money around, just, you know, betting on every horse in the race. Yeah, for sure. So some of them did donate to other parties. But I think the main thing is that most of them, nearly all of them, donated to Liberals prior to 2018. When 2018 happens, a lot of them kind of switched over and started going blue rather than red. Tell me about the use of the MZO uh, in, for example, the Greenland or, or parklands or wetlands in the province. I know we had an announcement from the province about the protection of the Greenbelt earlier this week. Yeah, so a lot of the most controversial ministerial zoning orders have been issued for places where development is not supposed to happen. Um, The biggest ones have been around protected wetlands, so places where the province itself previously decided it was so valuable that development would not be allowed. Um, You put an MZO out there and boom, you know, suddenly that can become a warehouse connected to a casino, which is what's happening in Pickering around the Durham Live development. Uh, A similar thing also happened to build a Walmart distribution center in Vaughan. And, you know, oftentimes the developers will strike a deal with the province or with a local conservation authority to recreate that elsewhere. But whether or not that's actually, you know, possible or (laughs) feasible from a financial perspective is another question. Do we really have a sense that ministerial zoning orders are being used more by the Ford government than the previous Liberal administration? Absolutely, that we do know. Um, The Liberals were in power for a lot longer than the Conservatives have been so far, for over a decade. They used them about two dozen times, so, you know, a handful per year. The Ford government has issued 37 since they took power, and then they also used a similar power that does a similar thing to rezone land for a 38th time. So it's been a lot more frequent. What's the takeaway from from all of this? I mean, you know, you might say that, well, conservatives tend to be more development friendly, you know, just in terms of, you know, your, your placement on the political spectrum. But what's the takeaway in terms of the management of land resources in this province? I think we need to understand that the small choices we make around land management right now really, really matter. We're in a climate crisis, right? Most people understand that. Um, It might be harder to understand why losing a farm field in Oromodonte might be a problem, right? But the problem is that those things are a carbon sink. They're zoned a certain way for a very good reason. 
um, to preserve ecological function in the area around the Greenbelt, for example, because, you know, all that land is connected through rivers and through where wildlife go. So all of these little choices matter. And maybe, you know, one development might be worth it in, you know, the cost-benefit analysis. But if we're talking about 38, I think that's a different conversation. Speaking with Emma McIntosh, who's a reporter with National Observer, and you can read her stories about the use of ministerial zoning orders, MZOs. Uh, her uh, two stories are online now. Emma, last time we had you on, I, I believe you had just gotten out of a isolation hotel. You were recovering from COVID-19. How are you? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, I'm a lot better. I still can't really exercise harder than like yoga, but you know, it's getting better day by day. So it has been a, it has been a, I know this term is used technically long hauler, but it has been a long haul for you since getting it. You're just not back up to a hundred percent yet. Yeah. I'd say I'm at like 97 and it's just that the <laughs> remaining 3% is the part of me that used to go on a bike ride or a jog. Um, but you know, I can do, I can do short bike rides. So I, my doctors say that I'm um, not at risk of being a long hauler, which is great news. Emma, that's great news. I'm glad you're feeling better. Uh, and thank you again for coming on the radio program today. Thanks so much for having me. That is Emma McIntosh, who's a reporter with National Observer, talking about ministerial zoning orders. And that is uh, something that, you know, it's not COVID-related, but it's something you got to keep your eye on. Absolutely. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show, weekdays starting at noon.